Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have today. An opportunity itself purchased by your precious blood to bind our hearts together in worship, in thankfulness and gratitude, in prayer and praise. And to ask you to reveal to our minds through the unfolding revelation that we have recorded in your word and through its proclamation to our hearts today to ask you to reveal more of the precious truth of our sins washed away in the blood of Christ that we might behold the great work of the cross with fresh eyes today and that our hearts might resound with more praise and fitting odes and prayers of thankfulness to you for what you have accomplished I pray, Lord, that any lingering distractions and sins that easily beset and false idols, Lord, that vie for our attention and want to compete with your glory, I pray that they would be incinerated in the light of your glorious truth as it appears to us by the power of your Spirit today as we read your word together. I pray, Lord, that so precious in our eyes would be the blood of Jesus Christ, which ransomed us, redeemed us, saved us, and established us in communion with you and in unity with one another. Lord, let us be known as the people who live in light of our salvation and who seek Christ's glory and his glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Hallelujah and amen. Praise the Lord. I'm so thankful to the Lord for providing us another opportunity to not only spend time in His Scriptures today, but also to spend time together and partaking in communion later. I would invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, end of chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3 will be our text, and in a moment as you're able, I'll ask you to stand, Hebrews 2, 14 through Hebrews 3, 6. The title of this morning's message is, I am and I will. And those two statements, I am and I will, come from the uh, book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. So later on during the message, I encourage you to keep a thumb in Isaiah chapters 41, 42, and 43, as well as our primary text this morning, Hebrews 2 and 3. And here between these two passages... We'll endeavor to understand in greater to greater, with greater degree the revelation and the fulfillment of what was prophesied of old in the prophets and then fulfilled in Christ about the God-centric office and execution of our redemption. That is, God is both responsible for every bit and every part in His work and in His person. I am and I will accomplish salvation is the testimony of Scripture. And so we'll take that as our theme today as well. So now as you're able, I encourage you to stand with me and let us read Hebrews 2.14 through Hebrews 3.6 this morning. Hebrews 2.14 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The author of Hebrews in these verses, as we pick up on our Hebrews series, which dovetails with our communion service, the first Sunday of the month, the author of Hebrews in these verses is highlighting themes of redemption, and he is identifying the incredible relationship of the incarnation, Christ becoming man, and executing the perfect plan of redemption for the elect. He's identifying these truths and their meaning and implication for us and is truly staggering the wealth of information packed into just these few sentences. And I hope this morning that we can appreciate it at greater depth when we consider it in light of what he has already written in Hebrews, what he will continue to expound, and also what has already been written in the record of Scripture and with particular interest in Isaiah as some of these themes are written in proleptic form in Isaiah 41, 42, and 43, where prophecies that certainly would have been mysterious to the contemporary ear at the time they were written became clearly manifest in the experience of all believers once Christ had finished His work on the cross and then the apostolic interpretation and declaration of its meaning begins to hit the ears of the believers, sometimes through letters like Hebrews, and often through the vocal proclamation of the original twelve, and then those who took the message on to the next generation, even to our day. The author of Hebrews in this section is employing Old Covenant prophetic categories. He's identifying patterns of messianic identity and their and thereby proclaiming the glory of Christ. This book continues to unfold, expounding the absolute monergism intrinsic to the Incarnation and its effects for all who are in Christ. That term monergism means it is God's work alone that is responsible for our salvation. This as opposed to synergism, which is a term that means The combined work of two parties produces more than the sum of what they could individually. 
Popularly, the gospel is preached these days, usually in a synergistic context. Usually the message is something along the lines of God's hands are tied until we grant Him something like permission to do what He has almost totally completed. But He is waiting for us to contribute to some degree. There's other variations of you know, uh, preaching and popular ideas that we contribute in some way to the work of God. And these are interesting to us and they are compelling to the human ear. Simply, I would submit to you for the sake that we love to think of ourselves as important, as central, and as significant. But I am here to tell you, and I think with the truth of Scripture, to undergird my claim that the importance and significance of our lives has everything to do with Christ and nothing to do with us. It is a praise to His glorious grace that He has ransomed for us meaning and purpose in our lives in Christ. But He has done this work exclusively as a result of His plan and His execution of that perfect plan in time. We've been reading in the book of Matthew how ludicrous, we can make this uh, conclusion from our journey through Matthew, how ludicrous it is to think that the disciples and the followers of Christ had anything to do with the gospel, especially when they usually presented a stumbling block rather than any help in that regard. That is, the people who were hearing Christ proclaimed from his own mouth largely remained clueless, and indeed they stood in the way of him more often than not, rather than joining forces alongside in some kind of co-redemptrix format to claim for themselves, I helped Jesus, I encouraged him in some way, or I am part of the reason that he did what he did. Indeed, there were those moments in stark contrast to the claim like this where someone like Peter, who had pledged his loyalty to Christ on his own terms, later finds himself rebuked by Christ, saying, Get behind me, Satan. That message in the Gospels, as the truth is unfolding before the ears, as a message that we need to hear before the ears of the disciples, is a message that we need to hear unfolding before our ears today, that the work of Christ unfolds to us as a complete surprise. It's not something that we could say to ourselves, Oh, I can see how that's what I would do in this situation, or I think I could help God's work along. The message of Jesus Christ and His finished work on Calvary is one that ought to hit us like a ton of revelatory bricks. It is totally Christ's work and completely Christ's work that we owe our salvation. It's an absolutely monergistic work of incarnation and Christ's work on Calvary and its effects for us in Christ that we owe our own salvation. The work of Christ alone is celebrated in its manifold fulfillment and comprehensive finality in the book of Hebrews. Christ is declared in His person and work, that is, both in His office and execution, as they are in view in these opening chapters. He is proclaimed and His work is expounded. Isaiah chapters 41 through 43 and some select passages from there that I hope to touch on in the course of this message provide additional context to understand the trans 
covenantal, if you will, a cross-covenant's understanding of the implications of Christ's finished work. And these verses in Isaiah that preceded the Messiah by centuries, here the coastlands are called as the audience to someday behold what we behold now in the new covenant and what is declared in the book of Hebrews. There's an audience that is called in the context of Isaiah to someday behold the Holy One of Israel who doubles as a Redeemer. I am and I will. I am the Redeemer and I will redeem my people. This audience is called to assemble and to be blown away with the revelation that foretold a day when all nations, ends of the earth, remote corners, and peoples abroad would see an event of cosmic proportions that would signal the hope of history and a salvation belonging to God granted to His people. Just to give you a context of the magnitude of what was anticipated in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 1, we have this reference to coastlands. The author says, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the people renew their strength. Let them approach and let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. The coastlands are referred to time and again, in a, and they establish a particular context for the truth that is proclaimed also in these pages. Note with me a few other references. Verse 5. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. And later in chapter 42, verse 4, it says, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. In verse 10, it says, Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. It continues, verse 11, Let the desert and the cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes forth like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up His zeal. He cries out, He shouts aloud, He shows Himself mighty against His foes. And so it continues with reference after reference, extolling the glory of God in the plan of redemption here in somewhat shrouded form, prophetically declaring that one day God would execute perfectly His plan of redemption, He would be responsible for it, and the ends of the earth would ring with the heralds that bring the truth that He has come and He has conquered His enemies and He has saved His people. This term coastlands refers to distant regions, islands, areas that have not been reached as of yet with maybe the common news of the day. They are the places that are outside of the popular paths of commerce and information. They are the distant lands. They are the places that are remote corners of the earth, the ends of the earth, if you will, where peoples have extended to the furthest extremities of geographical separation from others. 
And so we have a prophecy in the context of Scripture that one day a Messiah would come, but this Messiah would not be exclusively a reality appreciated by a small people in the corner of the Middle East who had ethnically been bound to Him in covenant and were looking forward to His arrival. But instead, the coastlands themselves, the distant lands, as far as their people spread on the earth, so would the news go, and so would the message of Christ coming and fulfilling the work of God that had been planned from before time began. That's how far the news would be spread, far and wide. That God had a plan, and He had executed it in His perfect time. And now the coastlands are called to witness, and all the Gentiles, with Jews alike, will hear of this great day. The heading for this morning's message is just simply three words, with respect to. Then I have four points for you that draw from some of the verses in Isaiah and in around those references I just gave, and also Hebrews 2 and 3 that we've already read. Point number one, with respect to the enemy, Christ died and delivered the children. Secondly, with respect to His people's identity, Christ is their Savior and brother. Thirdly, with respect to His people's piety or holiness, Christ is both priest and sacrifice. And finally, this morning, with respect to His legacy, Christ is the Builder and the Son. In the context of Hebrews 3 and 4, we see a totality of the work of Christ related to concepts such as these. We see in the first instance that the enemy that Christ destroyed, He destroyed in an ironic fashion. The enemy is pictured in 1 Corinthians 15 as death itself. And it's pictured here as death as, well, as death as well. Or we could say the wages of sin. In Hebrews 2.14 it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So under that category of death, we have a responsible party and we have a reality hanging over the heads of a people. We, as sinners, are held captive to the fear of death and it is a captivity akin to lifelong slavery. We also have the agent of death or the agent of evil given in this passage as the devil. But we also have and gloriously here revealed, the victor over these conditions. And that is indeed Christ Himself. If we back up, we read in verse 10, It is fitting that He, speaking of Christ, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering, excuse me, speaking there of the Father, God the Father, should make the sons of glory perfect, or should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, 
I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. And then it continues with our text this morning. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There's a title of a book that I'm reminded of as I read these words by the great John Owen, the reformer who titled the book, I believe it was John Owen, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. And this is the message here. This is exactly one of the passages where we get this idea. The death of death in the death of Christ. Death and its consequences that it represents the judgment that is due sin has been destroyed. It has been killed, as it were, in the death of Christ. Thus, the enemy of our souls has been dispatched, has been conquered by Jesus Christ's own death on Calvary. Thus, Christ died and in so doing delivered the children, which is the picture here of those whom God has given him, who share in flesh and blood with Christ after he is incarnate and have been set free from the enemy of their souls, have been set free unto eternal life. In verses 2, uh, 9 through 13, which we just read, last time we were in this passage, we talked about the incarnation of Christ, his taking on flesh, his coming in the flesh, and how important the incarnation is to the reality of the gospel. It was because Christ became man that he was successful in purchasing for us our salvation in a number of ways. We see in the incarnation is key to understanding how Christ can be the triumphant second Adam. In Christ, everything is put under his feet. In Christ, there is dominion, not only over all things that are created, but indeed over the effects of sin and the death that ensues as a result of our disobedience. Also, because of the incarnation, we have family ties with Almighty God. It is because Christ became man and then entered into his conquest on Calvary that the cost of brotherhood was paid, and the legacy of our brotherhood with Christ was secured. He is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. Another family term in verse 10, in verse 10 for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. So because of the incarnation and the work of Christ, we are then rendered in him both sons of the Heavenly Father, and brothers with Christ. And then thirdly, there's a reference to us as children. It says, Behold, I and the children that God has given me, in verse 13 and 14, since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, we find ourselves, therefore, by these descriptive terms, tied to God in a family relationship because of the incarnation of Christ. But when Christ took on flesh, 
And when he became man, it allowed certain things to unfold in the plan that purchased our salvation and that destroyed our enemy. And one of those things was Christ in his incarnation actually was able to die for our sins. Such that in his taking on flesh and blood, he could also take on the suffering as a man that our sin deserved. Could take the wrath of God applied on his stripes and his broken body that our sin deserved. And through that act of substitutionary atonement, pay the price for our sin. This plan was perfected in the incarnation. And when Christ died, it was according to the plan of Almighty God to deliver for Himself from death a family of God that would be ushered into eternal life. This phrase, through flesh and blood, refers both to Christ's sufferings and death and also to His incarnation. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that is, Christ shared in our experience as a man, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that is, He was subject to the same trials, testing, temptation, subject to the same conditions that we are subject to, and because He took on that office and role and became incarnate and followed through with this perfect plan, when He went to the cross and thus suffered as a man and died, He did away with the record of sins that was against us and nailed them to the cross, setting every one of His own free. Free from the destructive power of death and the devil. In Matthew chapter 27, we have these moments of graphic gospel significance that record for us in narrative form what is unfolded for us in theological form in Hebrews. This is one of my favorite passages because it so boldly and so pointedly uh, evidences, illustrates for us how Christ's death, this horrible, what looked like a defeat of our Messiah and Savior, was actually the key to our life in verse or, uh, 51 of Matthew 27, we read, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. I should back up to verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. And there in the pathos of that statement, we have this stinging reality. The darkest hour, if you will, and yet the brightest at the same time, coming together at the point of Christ's work on Calvary. Could there have been a moment of deeper and greater anguish than when the Son of God, who had, become man, who had became man, cried out on the cross? His cries here in death were preceded by Eli, Eli, lama, Shabbatthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the anguish... And the horror of this moment is descending like a dark cloud upon the witnesses. And finally he yields up the ghost and cries out with a loud voice. 
And there's a stream of anguish released from the throat of the Messiah. And then his body hangs limp on the tree. And the very next event recorded in Matthew 27 proceeds as follows in verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those were with Him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. One would think at first glance, reading that horrific record of the suffering of Christ at the moment of His crucifixion, that this was a picture of a moment in time where He is depleted of His life and power to the nth degree. But instead of what would normally be the case in a situation like this, all of the life draining out of everything connected to this man and his legacy. We see, in fact, that this moment is attended not by the waning life of one who had just given up the ghost, but indeed by the resurrection life of one who had just paid for everyone in him to be released from the power of the grave. Jesus laid down His life not because He was overpowered, but He laid it down of His own power. And this power, what Christ accomplished on the cross, is immediately evident at the point of His death by destroying the veil that separated us from the holiness of God, cutting in two the curtain of the temple, shaking the earth, even the natural order is unseated from its normal condition and The rocks are split by an earthquake and tombs are open and bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep are raised coming out of the tombs. Surely through Christ's death, He destroyed the power of death over those who were included in that amazing work. Matthew 27, 51 through 54, as the price for our eternal life was paid, the power of that installment is immediately evident as death is vanquished. Christ's sonship is confessed. Tombs are open. Rocks are split. And the veil to the Holy of Holies is torn, symbolizing free access to the presence of Almighty God for all who pass through Jesus Christ, as it were, unto eternal life. Christ died and delivered His children All in the same act. In laying down his life, he set the captive free. What were we captive to? There's a description of the captivity that shrouds the soul and ties the hands and condemns the sinner. And it's given here in Hebrews chapter 2 again in the form of slavery or in the imagery of slavery and also of death. It says again in verse 14, He Himself likewise partook of the same things that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death 
were subject to lifelong slavery. Through fear of death, you and I, before we, have, we had come to Christ, were subject to slavery. We were bound by shackles to the imminent reality of the judgment deserving of our own sin. We had only hell to look forward to outside of Christ's mercy and saving work. And this is the reality for all who have not confessed faith in Jesus Christ and received justification by His blood and by His blood alone. Sometimes we think of the reality of death or heaven and hell, ultimacy, things, these ideas in the next life purely in psychological terms. It is a great concern of mine that in our culture today, the idea and the concept of heaven has simply been reduced to a psychological crutch to help us deal with the reality of death. Heaven is not a psychological crutch. It's not a construct, a figment of the imagination of a happy ever after that gives us the psychological ability to deal with what everyone has to face, you know, the end of days, getting old, the inevitable end, and so on. And in the same way, our life ceasing as it is currently constituted, as in our normal interchange of what we appreciate through these senses and everything else, our life ceasing and then entering into the next life to come is not a superficial uh, uh, exchange or passage from one state of being to another. In other words, more real than what our existence represents in this life is what our existence will be in the next life. Most of us deal with life as if this is the reality, and then what happens after we die is some elusive sort of figment of the imagination or uh, fantastic concept. But the reality is, whether we realize it or not, that everyone who does not have the assurance of salvation lives their entire life shackled by the fear of death and subject to lifelong slavery. Now for the believer, there is glorious hope and truth in realizing this fact. Martin Luther wrote, He who fears death or is not willing to die is not sufficiently Christian. As yet such people lack faith in the resurrection and love this life more than the life to come. If we are truly going to live, if we truly walk in a manner worthy of our call, as the book of Ephesians states, we will live like those who are fearless and set free from that ominous anxiety of what will happen when we pass from this life. We will live like those who can count a joy to suffer and can face the inevitable end of our own physical lives with joy. Because this is the closest to suffering that we will ever incur, incur. Because as we pass from this life, we pass into the perfect life that Christ's death paid for us. But there's another group of people who do not have this assurance. And these people also need to be brought to the reality of their condition. And these are the unbelievers, the lost, that are around us that we see day in and day out. For many in this life, they live for superficial reasons and they find 
ways to be assured and secure and happy, but it is a short-lived thing, and it is not a picture of reality. For those who do not have the assurance of salvation in Jesus Christ, the most compassionate thing that we can do is draw to their attention the shackles that remain on their wrists and their feet, spiritually speaking. That they do have a death to fear. And that they are subject, so long as they remain unrepentant in their sin, to lifelong slavery. We live in this life striving, trying to eke out a certain happiness, and that it ends in hell and suffering and torment forever. This is the reality of the situation that faces us, depending on where we stand in relationship to the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 41, a background context for some of these truths, we find in verses 11 through 20, Isaiah 41, verses 11 through 20, Behold, all who are incensed against you, this is the oracle that is delivered to the people of God. And it's an oracle against their enemies. It says, Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. I am and I will. You have enemies on all sides. You have people who threaten life and limb. But this is what the Lord will reduce them to. Verse 15, Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge. That's an implement that is there to smash out the grain, to take dominion over a crop for the benefit of the harvest. And this is the picture of God's people declaring victory over their enemies. It's new and sharp and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. The enemy of our souls stood against us like a mountain in the way of our future. The reality of certain death, destruction, and hell itself was a hill that we could not circumvent, that we could not traverse. Yet God, through Christ as our Redeemer and the Holy One of Israel, took Christ as a threshing sledge, as it were, with sharp teeth, new, and thrashed that mountain and destroyed it. And now our enemies are nowhere to be found says in verse 16, You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. The God of Israel will not forsake them. talks about how God will lead the people from a place where their life and limb is threatened to an oasis of provision. Verse 18, I will open up rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. 
I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. I am your deliverer, and I will deliver you. And there is no formidable waste, there is no wasteland more formidable than the soul who is caught dead in his transgressions on the final day of reckoning. Yet even that mountain that stood against us and separated us from the presence of God has been removed by the power of Jesus Christ. And we who were once poor and needy, weak and discouraged, threatened and defeated, indeed a worm like Jacob, have been ransomed, rescued, and released into heights beyond comprehension, rivers of living water, fountains in the midst of the valleys, and the wilderness and wasteland have exploded into a celestial heaven of provision for the people of God, all because the hand of the Lord has intervened, all because the Lord declared, I am and I will accomplish redemption, all because Jesus became flesh and blood, and counted himself among the rebels. All because Jesus laid down his life and through his own death destroyed death on the cross. And all because those of us who are captive to the slavery of the fear of death have been set free of our shackles in Christ alone. The heading with respect to the enemy, Christ died and delivered his, the children delivered his children, can also be attached to a second point with respect to his people's identity, Christ, is Savior and brother. As we continue to read in Hebrews chapter 2, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, verse 14, He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death and the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Verse 16, note with, with particular interest, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. And in this section, those that he helps, those that he has called forth, those who are the recipients of salvation are pictured in this term, offspring of Abraham. And they are distinct from other groups, let's say, like the angels. It is not the angels that he helps. It is not the angels that he becomes like. It is not the angels that are the beneficiary of his incarnation and salvation. But no, it is another group altogether. It is the offspring of Abraham. The identity of the people of God is established in the promises of God. Isaiah 41, again, is so helpful in understanding the context of these words in Hebrews. Here in Isaiah's book that really foretells the gospel, we have in chapter 41, verses 8 8 through 10, these descriptors. It says, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen the offspring of Abraham, my friend. So this word of prophecy as to the salvation of the people of God is addressed to the offspring of Abraham 
who are, and Abraham is referred to as the friend of God. They are the ones whom God has chosen. They're also identified with the lineage of Abraham, Jacob, or Israel, and they are listed as his servant or subject. So this is a very specific group that is called out, set apart, and identified by God for His purposes. It says verse 9, Isaiah 41, For whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from the furthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant, and I have chosen you, and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you, we read these words briefly before, incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. So even in the people's identity, Christ is shown to be their Savior and their brother. There's a family and a covenant relationship with the people of God that is pictured here. It says, for surely not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So we have our own, we have a description of ourselves in Christ in these terms. Abraham's offspring, which also includes, incorporates the term in Isaiah 41, that we are friends of Abraham or God had declared himself or bound himself in covenant to Abraham, that he had chosen him, and that there was a plan. And according to this plan then, God's purposes were unfolding. In Isaiah 41, verses 8 uh, through 10, which I just read to you, we have this picture clearly. There's also a few other references that I wrote down. In Isaiah 41, consider these verses. Verse 14, Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Verse 17, that towards the end it says, I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Notice verse 20, it says, The Holy One of Israel, at the close of that verse, has created it. And the next verse, verse 21, To set forth your case, says the Lord, bring your proofs, says the King of Jacob. And so the people's identity is one of covenant. Abraham's friend, God, has fulfilled his promises to him. And all the way back to that covenant in Genesis, where an unlikely man is called out from Ur and given a promise from God, I will bless you and your descendants, and through you you shall be a blessing to all nations. We see the reality of this covenant unfolding in the book of Hebrews. All nations were called to witness in Isaiah 41, as we mentioned before, that the ends of the earth or the coastlands would hear of this covenant and its fulfillment unfolding before their eyes. And so when Christ came and He accomplished redemption for the offspring of Abraham, the message of the gospel was published and proclaimed to all the onlookers in every tribe and nation and tongue, even continuing to this day, as many corners of the earth where people dwell, the message of Jesus Christ is being shed abroad, that He 
has accomplished their salvation. Point number three this morning, with respect to his people's piety, Christ is their priest and their sacrifice. I am and I will. In review, what we're studying in, in Hebrews chapter 2 and 3, as these points that are so clear in the text, that Christ is, everything is of Him and through Him and to Him. That He is not just the one who conquers death, but He is the one who dies to do it. He is not just the one that we are associated with as brother, but also as Savior. Also in this point, He is not just the one that accomplishes His people's holiness by being their priest, but also by being their sacrifice. In verses 17 and 18, it says, Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Thus we have this truth, that with respect to this people's holiness, their justification, their right standing before the Lord, Christ is both our priest and our sacrifice. He is faithful to us and He is merciful to us. He is faithful to intercede and to advocate for us as the intermediary, as the mediator between God and man. But He is also merciful to us in that He offered Himself not just as priest, but also as sacrifice. And so in the context of these two truths, He has made what the Word says, what the Word calls propitiation for us, which is the satisfaction of wrath in Himself that our sin deserved. He is the Lamb that was slain. He is the wrath-bearing sacrifice. He is the substitute that was provided for us that our sins might be transferred to His account, that we might receive salvation. He is able to help His people in His incarnation. It goes on to say, verse 18, by further explanation, for because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. It is important at this point to note that when Christ took on human flesh, and became man, He didn't do it to relate to us in some superficial kind of way. Perhaps you're familiar familiar with some of the sentimental terms that the Incarnation or the Gospel is referred to on our day. Christ can relate to us because He understands what I'm going through because He became a man and He, you know, walked in my shoes. This is a kind of superficial and I would say man-centered understanding of the Incarnation. It is not that God did not understand our plight or couldn't relate to us or so desired to be with us because we were like His best buddies who were separated from some, by some door and He just wanted to walk through that because for our sake and for the love of that idea He wanted to make best friends with all these people on earth. No, the idea here is one that Christ of necessity had to take on human flesh 
because there was a legal requirement that he do so. Because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In other words, when Christ came to earth, he was subject to all of the stress and the temptation that we, as sons in Adam, were subject to, yet without sin. And because he passed that probationary period, if you will, that we failed, and because then he died in substitutionary form in our place, now the basis of our relationship is established through the incarnation. Thus, it is not a sentimental connection with our experience, but an advocacy role, a legal role that is enabled by his probation and by the consummation on the cross and then through his resurrection, the declaration of victory over death, hell, sin, and the grave and our access to the Father. In Isaiah chapter 43, there's glorious prophetic language again that speaks to some of these realities. And these Ideas are certainly in the back of the mind of the author of Hebrews. I would submit to you as the covenants between old and new are so thematic to the understanding of Hebrews. Isaiah 43, 1-7, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers... They, then though the rivers, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, to, in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes, and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life fear not for i am with you i will bring your offspring from the east from the west i will gather you i will say to the north give up to the south do not withhold bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth everyone who is called by my name who i created for my glory whom i formed and made and in these glorious prophetic images we see that there is prophesied an exchange. The Lord says in this oracle, I will give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. Declares, I am the Holy One, the Lord of Israel, and your salvation. I will give nations as your ransom. In other words, there is a promise of redemption here that prefigures an exchange that would come in Christ. Christ's life would be given in return for us and He would be given in exchange for us. And because of that exchange, because of that redemptive plan, we now pass through the waters of judgment as it were, pictured in baptism, pictured in the ark that, was, that carried Noah through the waters of judgment, ultimately pictured in Christ into the assurance and salvation and glory of heaven and communion with the Father. Also, we will walk through the fire, fire another picture of judgment and hell, the fire that our sin deserved. But just like uh, Daniel's three friends 
when they were accompanied by the fourth, the Son of Man were brought through the fire to the other side. So will we, in these redemptive pictures, so will we be brought through the fire and the flame shall not consume us because the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, our Savior, gave Christ in exchange for us. And in the picture of the cross and in the glorious truth of redemption, we have this truth with respect to the people's holiness. Christ is both their priest and sacrifice. And in closing this morning, we have one final thought in our text today, and that is with respect to His legacy, Christ's glory, He is both builder and son. It says in Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in God's house. For Jesus has been counted, counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Such powerful truths here. Christ is revealed as the apostle and high priest of our confession. Both of these are unique to the book of Hebrews. Christ as apostle in that he is the delivery system, the agent of truth, the gospel of the kingdom, and our sacrifice and our Savior delivered to us from Father, from the Father. Christ was sent as an apostle to us from the Father, delivering to us the truth of the kingdom of God and the application of the kingdom to our heart in salvation. Christ is the high priest of our confession. He is the chief fixture. He embodies all that our faith represents. He is the focus. He is not only the object of our worship, but he is the one who uh, he is the one whose work secured our worship. He gives us both the ability to worship him and ransoming us, and he is the object of our worship. He is the one deserving of the glory that we offer him. The I am and the I will come together in Christ. He is the object and enabler of worship. He is superior to Moses in this way. Though Moses was a servant of God and was notable to some degree, he was like the house that was being built. But the builder itself was the architect, Jesus Christ, the one who formed the building, the one who executed along with the Father the plan. He is the one deserving of glory. We've covered recently in our gospel study the picture of the Mount of Transfiguration. And it's interesting because Moses also had some, a, a, a similar experience on the Mount, on a mountain, if you will. Moses received from the Lord a message and a declaration to the people, a revelation for the people, and his face shone with the glory of God for a time. But what happened? That glory waned. 
and that glory did not remain, but faded. But there would come another who would fulfill the role of Moses and more, who would also appear on a mountain alongside those that had prefigured him. And that person was Jesus Christ, our Lord. And when he shone on the Mount of Transfiguration, his face was resplendent with pre-incarnate glory. And I submit to you, that was a glory that only increased and never waned. And when he went to the cross and secured our redemption, he did not stay in the grave, but was resurrected, resurrected to be glorified, ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father. And we will join him one day. And in that environment, there is no need for even a sun to light because it is the glory that permeates the experience of all of God's people there in perfect communion and fellowship with Him. It is the glory, that unfading glory of Christ. How much more glory does the builder of the house deserve than the honor and honor than the house itself? Jesus Christ is the glorious one. He is the one that was faithful. He is the one that is our high priest, our apostle, the fixture of our faith, the one who enables our worship and the one to whom we offer worship. In Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 8, there's a picture of a servant who would come. Isaiah 42, 1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands await for his law. Wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people in it, and the spirit of those who walk in it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the peoples, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisons those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And we have the fullest manifest picture of this kind of glory revealed in Jesus Christ, the faithful servant and the one who transcended the glorious work of Moses, Elijah, all the prophets that preceded him, the one who in himself secured our salvation and the one who ever lives to make intercession for us. Praise his holy name. Let's transition in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truths that we see in Scripture, the ones that are indeed too weighty for us to comprehend with our mere human mind. So we pray that the Holy Spirit would impress upon our heart the glories of the gospel revealed. Help us, Lord Jesus, to understand the great vanquishing power of your finished work on Calvary when the enemy of our souls, death itself, was defeated in your death on the cross. 
Help us to understand that our identity is secured and you're electing and setting us apart and in your faithfulness to the covenant. Help us to realize that Christ is both our priest and our sacrifice. And help us, Lord, in light of these truths to give you more glory you so deserve, dear Jesus Christ, because you are the builder of the house. You are the Son, the one who is the Son of David, the one who is the worthy heir, and the one in whom alone is our salvation. I pray now as we partake in communion together that it would be meaningful, Lord, as it reminds us of the broken body that you allowed, Lord Jesus, and that your blood that was spilled, Lord, for us to secure salvation is so real for everyone who are in you today. I pray that these truths, Lord Jesus, will be preached to our souls through the proclamation of the word and through the participation in communion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.